He came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, America. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today. We have Andrew Liveris, the former chairman of Dow Chemical, on his life story. Mario Economo, what's going on in Europe? Dr. Peter Mihalos, how are we going to live longer? Larry Kudlow, which way is the economy going? KT McFarlane, what's going on in our country? And let's start off with Senator Joe Lieberman on what's going on with the elections for 2024. Now we have Senator Joe Lieberman, of course, of No Labels. Now he's chairman of No Labels. He's one common sense Democrat, one common sense uh, independent and one of the finest uh, senators we've ever had and, and a vice presidential candidate. And, and um, he's working very hard for no labels. Uh, Senator uh, Lieberman, uh, what the heck is going on? You have an important meeting coming up in uh, uh, on Monday in New Hampshire. Right. Hey, John, uh, great to be with you. Thanks for your kind words. Uh, yeah, I mean, I never would have predicted this uh, when I started out my career as a Democrat, but in my opinion, the two parties uh, just repeatedly have been failing the country by by being more loyal or demanding more loyalty to themselves uh, and uh, not to the country and not working together to get things done. So that's the, the no-label story for the last uh, 12 or 13 years that we've been in existence for the first time having uh, achieved some success at electing centrist Republicans and Democrats to the House and Senate, uh, we're keeping open the option of uh, running a third uh, ticket, bipartisan unity ticket. And uh, right now we're focused on uh, getting on the ballot uh, in all uh, 50 states, but which ain't easy, but we're working hard at it this week. Uh, uh, really coming back to what we're about, ideas, and uh, we're going to release uh, our common sense uh, policy agenda uh, up in New Hampshire at St. Anselm's College. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin will be there. Uh, Governor John Huntsman will be there uh, playing lead roles in describing it. They've both been past chairs of no labels, but this is really about the ideas, and I uh, it'll be revealed on on Monday. But uh, th- this is a policy agenda that neither party would put out because we're trying to really be common sense centrist, uh, bipartisan. Yo, this is, yo, this, yeah. yeah, this is Pete King. Uh, always great to talk with you. Uh, yeah, Pete, thank you. Great to hear your voice, buddy. John Casperitidis, I was at an event several weeks ago that Joe Manchin was just there. It was not a political event at all. And I was yeah. pleasantly surprised by the number of people coming up to him and encouraging him and, uh, you know, really happy to see him there. So there does seem to be an appetite for something other than what we have. Do you think it's plausible and possible you know, when it comes down to it? Because, again, you know, there is a yeah. demand for it, I think. Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Pete. Uh, look, uh, American history uh, doesn't give you much precedent at the presidential level for a third ticket to win. I mean, the last one that did really was Abraham Lincoln. In 1860, uh, 
And then in 1864, he went one better and had a bipartisan ticket with uh, Governor Johnson of Tennessee, who was a Democrat. Uh, but but these are very unusual times. I mean, you got not only on the no labels polling, but on all the other polling, uh, a majority of the American people don't like the two uh, candidates that the two major parties are going to give them. And uh, you, you get 30, 40, we got over 50 percent of one of our polls said they'd be open to a third ticket bipartisan unity independence. So we're, we call it the insurance policy because we're not sure we're going to use it. Maybe the parties will come back to the center. Uh, maybe uh, the primaries will produce um, a better uh, candidates, more acceptable to the American people, but maybe not. And if not, uh, I think there's a real sentiment not only in the no labels, but in the country to give the people a third choice. There, there really is. Well, Senator, it's Tony Carbonetti. And Tony, it, how are I, you? incidentally, I heard the last interview. I think you're a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just downgraded. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, as yeah. you know, I, I think you, you are a great guy and you, a, a man that we both love very much, Senator John McCain. I, I was pushing for him at the time to, yeah. to select you as his running mate. I think it would have been... <laughs> You know, transforming at the time, but I think now the country is ready for this because, as you said before, we've become too much. It's not that the party asks so much. They want us to hate the other side. It's, that's, it's that's not enough it's to be – I don't hate Democrats. Yeah. I just like Republicans more. I, hate yeah, is so, not a good thing. So God bless you. know, I agree with you. Politics has become really like war in the good old days when you'd have an argument – on the floor of the Senate, and then you'd go out for a drink together. It just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, incidentally, I appreciate appreciate your mentioning McCain, because when he first said to me he wanted to vet me for vice president, I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, uh, no, what's wh why? Why not? Why shouldn't I? I says, oh, John, I don't know. You know, you may have forgotten, but uh, I'm, I got elected as an independent in 06, but I'm still a Democrat. Yeah, well, that's the point, he said. You know, I can hear him. He says, that's the point. The country really is so fed up with the partisanship. Yes. It would be great. So he was ahead of his time, and maybe no labels. Whoever the candidates are, uh, it, it has hit the moment when the country's really ready to whack the two uh, major parties because they're not they're not delivering. Senator, they're, they're yeah, I, I, I know uh, no labels is having a major meeting in New Hampshire on. On right. Monday, uh, but uh, since you heard my conversation with Ari Fleischer, and and uh, that the fact is, if I was look, I had my old Democratic hat back on there from uh, from the Bill Clinton days, yeah. uh, and if the Democrats are destined to win the next presidency, I think they want a choice between RFK and maybe Manchin. What, what say you on that? Yeah, I tell you the fact that. Um that uh, RFK Jr. Is, is now polling at almost 20% against Biden, and this woman, Marianne Williamson, is getting 8%, shows you that, that the disaffection, and I, I like Joe Biden, I know, I know him forever, uh, but this is a different moment in his career, and it shows you that even in the Democratic Party, you're now approaching 30% who say that they prefer another candidate so uh, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen uh, as this goes on. Uh, it, it's possible 
uh, I look at I could go back in history. I was only a kid, so I, I wasn't involved. But 1964, and of course it was the anti-war Vietnam War at the beginning. Uh, Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota declares against Lyndon Johnson. He enters the New Hampshire primary. <clears throat> he doesn't win, but he comes surprisingly close, and that brings uh, RFK Sr. into the race. And then uh, President Johnson withdraws. Now, can something like that happen this year? It's possible. Yeah. On the other, on the other hand, on the Republican side, and uh, I think uh, President Trump remains extremely strong and is the likely nominee. I, well, we all agree yeah, we on that. Do I agree. agree on that. Yeah. By the way, Senator, I want to say one thing real quick. You used to see my mother at Salati's Pharmacy, and you were always so sweet in Stanford. Oh, Thank kidding. you. Thank oh, you. that's a good memory. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Senator. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Andrew Liveris. He was chairman and CEO of Dow Chemical, and he wrote a new book, Leading Through Disruption. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started, and how you got to be the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. Well, I'd like to call it the American dream. It, it probably is, but also the Greek dream and the Australian dream. I, the son of Greek immigrants to Northern Australia, uh, first my um, family to go to university, college, did chemical engineering, and Dow Chemical found me, uh, recruited me, and I had a 43-year career. I pinched myself as I got promoted, and when I got to be in the running for the top job uh, and got it, I spent 15 years as CEO and chairman, and whether it be my Greek heritage, my Australian upbringing, whether it be my American dream, I'm true. I'm a global citizen, but I truly feel like I've had a blessed life. And I wrote a book 10 years ago called Make It in America, which got a lot of fame, especially with the Obama and Trump administrations. And I decided to write a second book as I retired. Now, I mean, you're too young to retire, but aside from that, your new book is called Leading Through Disruption. And being the CEO, I remember asking you one time, how many countries was Dow Chemical in? Yeah, well, we were, uh, it had sales offices in 160 countries and manufacturing facilities in over 50 of them. Now, I remember also asking you, how many countries did you go to a year being CEO? Uh, 40 international trips, almost every trip was a country, but, you know, I did a lot of countries twice and three times. So somewhere between 20 and 30 countries a year. Now, dealing in so many countries, international risks, money risks, I mean, you have to be one sharp CEO. Seriously, I mean, not everybody can do that complicated job. How did you feel about it? Well, I mean, I wrote the book uh, because I think this century, as a CEO, as a leader, any leader of any institution, but certainly global institution, is seeing so much disruption, so much tectonic shifts and so many interventions. You think about this century, 9-11, the global financial crisis, the global pandemic, the rise of China, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, politics failing in every major country that is a democracy. I felt that to be a CEO and to deal with that, I had to have a different playbook, a different way of operating. And one of those, John, was to reinvent myself. You know, I wasn't the CEO when I retired that I was when I started. And I think I took count at least six different versions of myself. You had to be resilient, persistent, and agile, and keep pivoting. 
your large corporation and pivoting Dow, the size, you know, and eventually the motive of DuPont. I mean, I, I got to tell you, cultural change of the large kind is not for the faint-hearted. But I wrote this book to give the next generation some positive lessons about what I learned on how to do that. I talk about geopolitics, country risk. I talk about financial risk. I talk about people risk. I talk about environmental, social, and governance risk. I talk about a digital risk. And I bring them all together and say, here's how you manage your way through those intersections. And, you know, it's the old football adage. Don't just go deep. Don't just go wide. You have to go deep and wide. And that's what I try to do in the book. That is wonderful because it's becoming more and more complicated to find the right CEOs to run that size of company. And we've seen that so many times in the last 20 years. Companies like Xerox and Kodak and so many companies that did not make it because they weren't as good as the original CEO. Yeah, totally. totally. Who do? You know, founders, yes. founders are one thing, but running corporations, five, six generations, you know, that's, that's a much harder thing. And they're complicated, and these tectonic shifts make it even more complicated. So you're right. It's, it's not easy to find someone to lead. Tell us the fact, and the reason you wrote the book, and who is your audience? Who do you want to read that book? Well, i, I got to tell you that when I first started writing it, my publisher said, you know, this is not a business book. This is a book for all leaders. You can be leading an NGO, leading a government, leading a city. You can be leading a company. You also need to help young people understand that our generation hasn't screwed it up. What we've done is we've given you a massive opportunity. And here, you young people have to step up and understand that the playbook for leadership in this century, this is the way you go forward. Don't look back. Don't look at what we did. We grew up in the boom-boom years post-World War II where growth could forgive all sins. This sort of growth is responsible growth, is sustainable growth, is growth that is, you know, includes equality. And let's not make it wokeism. Let's make it a business strategy. Let's generate new profit pools based on responsible business. So I work for the generation that's getting despondent in the lack of leadership. I've got an academy I've started in my alma mater. It's got 120 students in it right now, and they're being taught in this book. And what I decided to do was to actually make the book available for the entire next generation. Well, that is wonderful news. Now, the book is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles. Where is your book yeah. available? Yeah, all bookstores that have business or leadership books. Well, I'm going to make sure I order your book and read it this weekend. And anything else you want to say to all American people? America is based on hope and dreams, but America is also based on perspiration. This book will give you a pathway to work hard to get the rewards that America can offer. Please pick it up and then drive us to the next century, this century, with positivism, not the negativism we've seen of late. Andrew Liveris, former chairman of Dow Chemical and CEO, congratulations. You're too young to retire. Maybe on our next interview, you'll tell us what you're going to be doing for the next 20 years. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. I will do that, John, and great to be on your show and your friend. Thank you so much, and congratulations on your son's wedding. And thank you, John, and love to you and Margot and the family. With us today with a report on what the heck is going on in Europe, we have Mario Economo, a former banker that worked in New York, London, Zurich, and other large money center institutions. Tell us, Mario, so many things are happening in Europe. What are you focusing on? Yes, hi there. Good morning. So let's talk about uh, the recent NATO conference in uh, Vilnius and its impact uh, with respect to Europe. Uh, and we'll make some observations uh, with respect to all the discussions and the agreements that were reached with respect to Sweden joining and Turkey's agreement to that. As we know, NATO had a very large meeting in Vilnius this past week. A lot of things were discussed, but the most important development was that of Turkey actually agreeing to allow Sweden into NATO. On the face of it, that seems straightforward. Everybody was very happy and uh, high-fiving each other on the success of that. The reality, however, is slightly different. Although President Erdogan agreed to allow Sweden into NATO, the reality is this is something that still needs to pass through his National Assembly. And they are actually now going to be going off for their summer recess. And the discussion is that they will meet to discuss this and approve this in October of this year. Many people suspect President Erdogan is doing this because he wants to see what the U.S. commitment with respect to supplying the F-16s, 80 refurbished F-16s and 40 new state-of-the-art machines to be delivered to uh, Turkey is going to be. I think he wants to make sure that when President Biden told him that the discussions are, are looking good with respect to supplying these F-16s, that the U.S. will in fact follow through on this. Um, one thing we can say coming out of this NATO conference, the biggest winner once again is in fact uh, Turkey. Uh, the biggest loser once again is the European Union and the European countries. And why do I say that? I say that because President Erdogan succeeded in doing two things, apart from his whole discussion with respect to the F-16s. He succeeded in actually speaking to the U.S. to convince the EU that discussions with respect to Turkey's joining the European Union need to actually proceed once again. And although he realizes that most, more likely than not he will not become a full member of the EU, his goal is to actually create a much stronger customs union for trade between Turkey and the European Union. He wants visa-free travel for his citizens into the European Union, meaning they can basically hop on a plane and go and visit Europe for a certain amount of time without having to actually secure a visa. And he did one other thing which is very unusual and very unique. He actually succeeded in making Sweden 
essentially agree to change its constitution with respect to releasing or sending back to another country, in this case, Turkey, people that Sweden believes lives are going to be threatened or endangered if they were to return to a certain country. So he was able to pull this off, and it's it's mind-boggling how a European country would actually allow itself to be put into that type of a situation. And as a European, I can tell you that uh, because of this, unfortunately, many of the countries in Europe now are going to turn sharply to the right. Many of the far right-wing parties are going to actually gain tremendous traction as a result of this, and the things that are going to happen and we're going to see are going to be very different moving forward in Europe with respect to elections. For the U.S.'s part, it needed to actually provide or have a discussion in terms of providing these F-16s to Turkey because the U.S. has to make sure that the wheat from the Ukraine continues to get out into the world. Uh, Without Turkey's help on this, that becomes a real problem, and the last thing the U.S. wants to see is many countries around the globe suffering from famine as a result of wheat not making its way out. Also, the U.S. wants to make sure that Turkey continues to rely on the West, depend on the West for its military uh, weapons acquisitions, and not actually fall back on Russia. Which brings up another interesting point, the fact that Russia also does need uh, Turkey, and therefore, even though we recently saw the release of four POWs just prior to that NATO summit of the Azov Battalion by Turkey back to the Ukraine, and although the Russians were very upset, up until now they've said nothing more than voicing concern over the fact that Turkey did not respect the agreement that had been signed. So all in all, we see that Turkey has actually come out of this whole event with a very successful presence at the meeting. The U.S. was able to secure what it wanted, which was for Turkey and President Erdogan to actually allow Sweden in so that it could expand NATO. But the EU itself showed once again how weak it is with respect to being able to A, uh, negotiate with other countries bilateral agreements, and B, to actually demonstrate to the world that the EU as a very strong and wealthy group of nations does not actually have a unified and independent defense mechanism and therefore needs to rely on NATO and thereby the U.S. Mario, one question. What you said about the European Union, does that mean that Turkish citizens and non-citizens that have Turkish passports would be able to go into European Union without showing their passport? Or how does that work? Well, the idea is when a Turkish citizen wants to leave Turkey and go and visit a country in the European Union, he or she needs to secure a visa. They need to go to the consulate of the country they intend to go visit and get a visa in order to enter that country. In much the same way, that used to be the case between the Europeans and the U.S., but then we had this agreement signed between many countries in the European Union and the U.S., whereby Europeans are able to travel to America without a visa. They just need to complete an ESTA form online, and therefore they're allowed in. That's what he's hoping to do, and he wants to secure. It's a very large... And you think that President Biden gave him that commitment? I'm not sure President Biden can give that commitment. The European Union has to give that commitment. Do I think President Biden raised that issue with the Europeans and said that in the long run, it's better for Turkey to be with us than against us, uh, and therefore you need to consider this as an option? Yes, I believe President Biden made a strong case to the European Union to consider that as an option. I understand. Uh, now, Mario, thank thing, you. One last Go thing. Ahead. Like we got 20 seconds say, left. Turkey plays a very critical role because there's only two countries in the world 
Turkey and China that are speaking to both Russia and the Ukraine. Every other country either speaks to the one or the other that's a world power. It's very important for the U.S. to make sure that the dialogue with Turkey continues because even though there's a rapprochement now between the U.S. and China, the reality is Turkey is also in there and the U.S. does have established relations with Turkey. Thank you, Mario Economo. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Dr. Peter Michalos, our in-house genius. Dr. Michalos, give us an update. What's going on? You know, it's a hot summer. Anything new? Well, yes, uh, the the heat is definitely affecting uh, many people. And uh, recently we had the air quality issues with the Canadian wildfires. So uh, respiratory uh, diseases were on the rise. But one of the bigger concerns that we're seeing in uh, certain areas that are warmer, and we had a mild winter, we're seeing tick-borne illnesses, and many diseases can be transmitted by ticks. And everybody just always thinks of Lyme's disease, but there's a whole other set of diseases in addition to Lyme's. One is called anaplasmosis, origiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tularemia, and uh, another one called babesiosis, which can also cause a lot of damage, and it can even cause the the spleen to explode in some cases because it gets overwhelmed. So when people go for a, uh, they get bit by a tick, I tell them to remember not only to ask for a Lyme test, but to ask for a tick panel. And also we're seeing uh, many more cases in children because they're out there and they're playing. And we need to protect kids. We need to uh, wear long sleeve pants, socks to try to protect, try to keep little kids especially out of the woods after they come from playing outside to be inspected, and especially those who have pets, because now we're learning that pets also get bitten by ticks, and they bring them into the house, and then they can jump to humans, so that's something that we need to be aware of, and there are treatments and antibiotic treatments. Try to get seen as fast as possible when you have a tick on it. If you don't want to try to pull it off yourself, go to an urgent care center, and there are various methods of tweezing them off. Not good to pull them off suddenly. It's good to tease them off slowly. And so parts of the tick doesn't remain inside. And then you'll see your doctor get appropriate course of antibiotics because the late syphilis, it, can, it acts like a syphilis-like disease because it is a spirochete. It actually looks like syphilis under the microscope. But again, if you catch it early, it's treated. You usually get two weeks of antibiotics after a tick bite. And then the other thing that we uh, tell people to watch out for is sometimes if they eat meat and they have very bad reactions, there's something called alpha-gal, which is also from a tick-borne disease where your immune system attacks the byproducts of eating meat and you get quite sick. And then you have to avoid eating meat when you develop this after a tick-borne bite. The other thing we're seeing on the rise, which we never saw before, is not endemic in the United States, is malaria, which comes from other countries when people visit countries that are endemic. But for the first time in 20 years, we've seen cases of malaria that originated here in the United States in Texas and Florida. So that's another thing that we need to be on the lookout, try to protect kids, use your anti-mosquito repellent type substances. I like when I had little kids, and even now, if I go somewhere, I always put some skin so soft on my ankles, on my elbows, back of my neck, and that's just a a more natural, uh, non-chemical way to repel. Uh, It's not advertised for that, but it does help. 
but it's good to protect kids from that. And also in your backyards, try not to leave pools of water, puddles of water, because that is also a problem. And then the other thing uh, I tell all the young people to please use protection, protect yourselves, because sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise. In the past year, we had 175,000 cases of syphilis in the United States. And we've also had some resistant cases, and the medicine to treat it called bicillin has been uh, backordered and backlogged because we depend on a lot of other countries for the components to make our pharmaceuticals. So we tell people to uh, please be aware, to uh, be careful, uh, to avoid things because chlamydia is another sexually transmitted disease on the rise, and we just want to keep people healthy and safe, use protection, use common sense because our health is uh, wealth and healthcare is national security and our supply chain for pharmaceuticals is national security. And then the last quick thing I'll mention is they studied the gut microbiome in centarians in Japan, and they had unique and balanced, diverse microbiomes. So we're learning more and more about how important the microbiome is for our health, and 80% of our immune system is in our gut, and we'll continue to report some of the latest discoveries on how to stay healthier through your gut and what you eat, when you eat on WABC. So keep listening for more details on how to live longer and have health span. Well, you know, Spock used to have an expression, live long and prosper. And so I'm saying to you, live long and prosper, and we'll catch up again real soon. Thanks, John, for always getting the truth out on the Cats Roundtable. The number one show on Fox Business uh, on uh, Monday through Friday between 4 and 5, and the number one show on Saturday mornings between uh, 10 and 1. Larry Kudlow, it was a complicated week. Tell us about what do you think of what's going on with the economy? Well, I'll tell you what, John. My favorite story is Hollywood going on strike. And the reason I love this story is the Hollywood Writers Union and all the technical people behind them are complaining about Bidenflation and that their real wages have gone down. Now, this is Hollywood, left-wing, woke, pro-Biden. They're going on strike. Their biggest justification is their real wages have gone down because of the inflation, even though inflation is cool. They're talking about the last couple of years. So I'm waiting for them to do a six-part series on why all economics <laughs> is a terrible idea, okay? Maybe they've learned something. And the other thing I like about this story is that Bob Iger, who's kind of leading the producers and the studio owners and the capitalists, he's complaining that the writers make too much money. Now, this is Iger, who runs one of the most woke corporations in America, Disney, Disney right? So Iger, really at heart, is a capitalist who's declaring class warfare against his own writers. So this is just a fabulous story, and we had a lot of fun with it on our show tonight. Well, I was listening, and, you know, I, I listened to your show between 4 and 5. That, that, that way I can uh, decide what we're going to talk about. <laughs> the other thing, John, that's kind of goofy is, You've had a, uh, a very low inflation rate, and the leading indicators of inflation are all down, in inverted yield curve, commodity prices. But, of course, the Fed is going to tighten two more times. So that's what they're saying. Uh, I think once, it, once at the end of this month and again in September. I don't know that they'll do it in September. But, so let me get this right. Inflation is down, but they're still tightening. I'm not sure I understand. I was with Maria Bartolomo on uh, Wednesday or Thursday, I forget, 
And I, I, I said to all those people that were advocating, oh, yes, yes, we got to raise it again. I said to them, <laughs> uh, six months ago, you couldn't dream that you only had 3% inflation, and now you, mm-hmm. you, you want to uh, keep raising it. And, 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 you know, the banks are doing well, by the way. Chase Manhattan Bank, <laughs> J.P. Morgan did, uh, mm-hmm. made a, a great yeah. earnings, didn't it? Yep. Yeah, look, the, the stock market has done well this year. And um, there's a you know a small but important minority of investor analysts who said stocks are going to continue to do well, and I think part of that is inflation is coming down, and I I think you know interest rates are going to slowly come down even in the long end, no matter what the Fed does. So I think there's some positive things going on out there. The only trouble is. On the other side of the coin, budget policy is still very, very expansive. Um, the CBO came out with their numbers. The budget deficit is 150% higher than last year um, to the first nine months. And we're heading towards a $2.25 trillion budget deficit. And, of course, the culprit here is not revenues. It's overspending. And the point is you've got budget policy, fiscal policy, is inflating with its spending, and monetary policy is trying to deflate with its tightness. The two of them should work together, and unfortunately they're not, and that is a problem for the economy. Well, I told Chairman Powell on uh, on Fox Business the other morning it should, it should go down a point right now to save mm-hmm. our country. That's my opinion. Well, look, I think the optimal story here is the Fed should keep rates where they are and stop manipulating them. They should uh, continue to drain uh, from their balance sheet. But on the other side of the coin, you know, instead of spending more, we should spend less. Instead of regulating more, we should regulate less. Instead of taxing more, we should tax less. In other words, let's have some supply-side growth and then a stable, strong dollar. That's the key. And that was the magic of Ronald Reagan many years ago. And also, I might add, uh, Bill Clinton followed in his in his footsteps. But we don't have that right now. So I think the outlook for the economy is very poor. Uh, I hope inflation stays down. I'm not sure it's going to stay down. But um, the stock market lives on profits. Profits look okay. So for the moment, we can all live happily ever after. And Hollywood's got to come out with their anti-Bidenomics. Uh, we, we agree. Six-part series. We David agree. Lewis, David uh, what, Lewis can what, be the star. What, Russia and OPEC are trying to stir the pot and raise the price of oil, which will raise the price of inflation. And I guess that's... You think they can do it, John? I don't know. I'm not sure they the can get away with it. They're stirring. They're not yeah. getting away because, you know something, uh, Larry, like we talked about uh, at dinner, uh, they lie to each other. Right. You That's know? right. Russia, That's right. Saudi Arabia, they're all lying to each other. And John Kerry's going over to China to make deals that no one will ever know about. That's <laughs> maybe the scariest part of the story. The guy's a rogue. I mean, he doesn't report to anybody. He's a cabinet member who wasn't confirmed by the U.S. Senate. There's no accountability. Lord knows what Kerry is going to do or say in China. I mean, that's a bad wild card. What's Biden doing with the student loans? Oh, my God. So they're trying they're trumpeting now this thirty nine billion dollars. The Supreme Court just said you can't do that. You don't have 
executive authority without congressional legislation. And they insist on it. Uh, they've got some income-based test. 800,000 people are see their loans forgiven. It is completely counter to what the Supreme Court just said. And then you can bet there will be lawsuits. I mean, this is the Bidens who love to talk about democracy, right? Here's the Bidens undermining democracy by undermining the Supreme Court. We have three branches of government. They seem to forget that. Larry Kudlow, I will be listening to you 10 o'clock tomorrow morning on, on WABCradio.com and 77WABC on your iPhone app worldwide in 185 mm-hmm. countries. Thank you, John, and the solar system. And the solar and the system. Way. Thank you so much, Larry <laughs> This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Well, joining us now to talk about other cases, including the cocaine that was found at the White House, but they can't figure out who, and a whole bunch more, is Professor Alan Dershowitz. Professor Dershowitz, thanks so much for joining us. Well, this is a good day for justice. You know, if they found the right person. And truth, it like justice, it, it, and the American way. <laughs> say it again? I said uh-huh. truth, justice, and the American way. American way. Look, we have to, he has to be presumed innocent. He most likely will plead guilty and try to come up with some deal. I don't know what kind of deal you can make when there are so many potential, um, so many victims. And the presumption of innocence obviously doesn't operate outside of court. It only operates in the courtroom itself. And so it seems to me like today was a good day for, for justice. And, you know, uh, technology, I just teach my students years and years ago, you want to be good lawyers, you, everybody knows the law. You're not going to be better than the next lawyer by learning the law better. Learn technology, learn DNA, learn probability theory, learn science, learn all of the stuff that most other lawyers don't know. That's how cases are going to be won today. And um, I think, you know, we're going to see more and more of these cases solved by science. And I think it sends a very strong deterrent message to potential killers. You're going to get caught. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But you're going to leave around tra- traces, and you don't even know how to control what traces you're going to leave around. And they're going to catch you, and that's a good message to send to potential criminals. Absolutely. By the way, Professor Dershowitz, I wish the people that were investigating Gilgo Beach could uh, give some advice to the people at the White House, because after well, just a week and a half, they gave up on the cocaine investigation, you know? Which is shocking, because you have to see whether there were any fingerprints, any DNA left behind any photographic evidence. Remember, people just don't walk into the White House the way, you know, you walk into a supermarket. You have to be checked in. I've been, obviously, we've all been to the White House uh, many times. It's the most secure place in the world. How they can't figure out who was in that area, in that location during the relevant period of time escapes me. Um, So I think they gave up much too quickly. Yeah, I think so too, Ed Cox. Yeah, they don't even know which location it is. It moved around to three different places. That's crazy. Someone found the evidence, uh, the cocaine. It was someplace, and some worker would certainly put them under oath, and they will tell you where they found it. Yeah, it's not some. Uh, it's I had people on the show, you know, well, at night saying job, Barney Fife. You yeah, know, the job of the Secret Service, and uh, Ed Cox would know he was part of the uh, uh, the Nixon family, uh, is to protect the family. Now the question is, are they? Should somebody else take a look, or is it all done? Already? Well, who else takes a look? The FBI. Well, the FBI. I mean, how about? Well, well, some people are suggesting the DEA because it was a drug. Obviously, it's a Class A substance, so it is yeah, an illegal drug. Let's take a reality checks. 
Who is going to go against the Secret Service? Not the FBI. Nobody, nobody, nobody. And that's the sad Let's reality, go on John. To the next thing with Alan Dershowitz. We All have right. so many things to right. talk about. Alan, it's Richard Weinberg. There was noise out there now that the Attorney General of the United States, uh, Judge Garland, is going to allow the local U.S. Attorney in Delaware, Weiss, to go before Congress and testify. Have you heard about that? Well, first of all, the Attorney General of the United States does no power to prevent uh, somebody from being compelled to testify in front of Congress. We have a separation of powers and checks and balances. Congress has the ultimate authority to decide who to call. And, you know, there's a tradition that you don't call people involved in ongoing investigations. It's only a tradition. And uh, there's no reason why Congress can't call uh, those folks. And, you know, there's a lot of people Congress can call. I think Congress can call the people involved in the investigation of the leak in the Supreme Court about the overruling of Roe versus Wade. Absolutely Congress correct. Congress play a very important role in overseeing what's going on in the Justice Department, the FBI. The American public does not today trust law enforcement. Now, when it comes to what went on in the White House, it may ultimately require the appointment of a special counsel, because if you have conflicts of interest, the Secret Service is designed to protect the president. And here, if they find certain things, it won't be in the interest of protecting the president. The attorney general is appointed, obviously, by the president. And so when you have at least some suspicion that there may be some involvement in some family members, and it's not beyond suspicion. It's just suspicion today. There's no evidence of it. You know, the possibility of special counsel is out there as well. It can't be special counsel appointed only for some things but not other things. And so um, I I think this should not be the end of the investigation. This should be the beginning, uh, the end of the first phase, but the beginning of a more general investigation. So, Cong- uh, Professor Edcock, so Congress can uh, uh, call people to testify, but why do they have to come and can't they delay it and put a lot of friction in the system? So that's why you need the cooperation of the Department of Justice. It's better if you have the cooperation. There's no question about that. It means they won't appeal it. They won't challenge it. But ultimately, Congress will win if there is a challenge and they will get to be able to ask a U.S. attorney whether or not he was told expressly that he could take the investigation beyond Delaware to California and to the District of Columbia, and whether that was undercut. We have conflicting testimony on that. We have the Attorney General of the United States essentially saying he can go anywhere he wants and he'll get my complete cooperation, and I will make sure that the U.S. attorneys in California and D.C. cooperate fully and allow him to take the investigation there. And then we have indications, at least, that maybe that didn't happen. Well, you know what? I can't wait. Of an investigation. No. Professor Dershow, I can't wait because next week the IRS whistleblowers are going to testify. yes. And, and they'll the, show themselves publicly. And the other one that we yeah. have to talk about is uh, uh, Garland didn't deliver by 5 o'clock, but I understand he's negotiating. Yeah, that's what he's saying, that uh, that Weiss, it looks like, at least David Weiss, who's the well, key but to, guy. But to Professor Dershow's point, what is there to negotiate then? If Well, and I, it's, it's a matter of convenience. It's a yeah. matter of it's easier to do if the Justice Department cooperate. So I'm in favor of negotiation. But in the end, I think Congress has to play hardball with this. And look, thankfully, the framers understood this issue. And they created the first system in history of checks and balances and separation of power. So the government, whoever the government is, doesn't get the last word. You have one House of Congress controlled by a different party, and they have the right, the power, and the responsibility to look at the government. And that's what they're doing. And we should, as Americans, 
all be proud of the fact that the system of checks and balances is working. We may not be happy with the result. If you're a Democrat, you say, oh, my God, what's that Republican Congress doing interfering? If you're a Republican, you know, you might say, what the hell is the Justice Department uh, covering up? But we have checks and balances, and nobody gets the last word. You know, when Tocqueville was once asked, who has sovereignty in America back in the 19th century, he said, the process, the checks and balances process, that's sovereignty in the United States unlike any other country in the world. All right. Well, Professor Dershowitz, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Enjoy the vacation. Thank you for coming on during your vacation. I appreciate it. With us today is Katie McFarlane, and she is the former Deputy National Security Advisor for our government. Katie, where do you want to start? I'm going to give you the chance to decide where we start. I would start with Europe. So President Biden was in Europe. He met with the NATO leaders. They talked a lot about Ukraine and what would... The, what should NATO's response be? So where we are now is that Ukraine has mounted a counteroffensive, a spring offensive against Russia, and it's not going well for Ukraine. So Ukraine wants the NATO to bail Ukraine out, wants NATO membership, which is very problematic, because if Ukraine were to join NATO, that's effectively America declaring war on Russia. I don't know where that goes. I know how you end the Ukraine war, and that's if President Biden would stop the war on American fossil fuels and let American energy producers make oil and natural gas. It would drive the price of oil and natural gas down because our producers can make money at a very low level. And Russia needs a lot of money, needs oil at about $80, $90 a barrel to make a profit because that's what Russia uses to pay for the war in Ukraine. So if you were to drive the world price of oil down, you'd bankrupt Russia and Russia would be forced to go to the negotiating table. But somehow President Biden seems to be toying with the idea of getting NATO involved or the United States involved with a shooting war with Ukraine rather than to do the obvious and easy thing. I'd move on from there to China, and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is increasing Chinese involvement in sort of pushing the United States around. Not only the spy balloon and the spy stations that are now in Cuba, but China now controls both entrances to the Panama Canal. China's making moves on Taiwan, either exercises or a lot of rhetoric about how China is going to take over Taiwan. And at the same time, because the United States has such rapid support and abundant support for NATO and for Ukraine, we're drawing down our own stockpiles to give to Ukraine to fight Russia. And it's to our, I think it's very irresponsible of the president. Wow, that's a mouthful. And we do have problems in Ukraine. And I agree by increasing the price of oil in Russia and in China and Saudi Arabia, 90 to $100, that's the money that Russia used to hire the Wagner Group to go after the Ukraine. And we're paying for that. The American people paid for that because they paid higher gas prices. It was the war on fossil fuel increased the price of gasoline. We took a trillion dollars worth of wealth from North America. And guess what? We moved it to Russia and the OPEC nations and China. And you're 100% right on that one. I know all we have to do is open up the spigots in North America and the price of oil will come down to $55, my opinion. You know, you're the one who really pointed that out to me. Um, about a year ago, I asked you how long would it take if the United States ended the war on fossil fuels and we turned the spigot back on, how long would it take for the world price of oil to drop? 
And you said it would happen very quickly because it's a commodities market, a futures market. So the world would realize, oh, if America is going to be producing oil and natural gas, the price is never going to go up to $80, $90 a barrel. Russia is never going to be rich again. And it would end, in, in my mind, it would end the war in Ukraine. You know, if you look at Russian history, every time the price of oil has been high, Russia's rebuilt its military, it's invaded its neighbors, and it's had proxy wars. Every time the price of oil has been low, like during the Reagan administration, the Trump administration, the Russians hunker down. They just try to feed their own people. So it's all about energy, and I think it would, it's so easy for us to fix, but yet President Biden refuses to do it. I was on Maria Bartolomo's show on Friday morning, and I had an argument with some of her, her uh, people that she had on, and they're saying, oh, we got to raise the price of the interest rates one more time. I said, you got to lower the price of interest rates. We're going to break our own country. And I couldn't get through it to them, and they're a bunch of analysts. And I said, did you ever have a job running a company? None of these guys have ever had a job running an actual company. And it was just very frustrating, KT. China, what's going on in that area? They still make 92% of our antibiotics. We can't afford to get sick. You know what happened during COVID, in the early days of COVID? President Trump called it the China virus, the China flu. The Chinese called the White House and they said, stop it. If you continue to connect it to China, China, anything, we're going to cut off your antibiotics for a year next year. And we were in a stuck position because China does make either 90, 97% of the component parts or of the actual antibiotics themselves. We have a real supply chain problem. This is John Katzmatidis. If you want to hear the full interview, go to wabcradio.com. Thank you for listening to the Cats Roundtable every Sunday morning. We'll bring you the latest in what's happening in our community, our country, and the world. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a nice Sunday. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYC. See.